sir. Well, again, good morning, church family. Wow, y'all sound great. It's so encouraging to hear your voices, hear the praise of the saints going up to God as we declare that God is mighty to save. And uh, if you get a chance today, and maybe you haven't been here long enough or weren't able to come to class, make sure you grab Clyde and just ask him about not only that quick story he told, but about the stories coming out of Ukraine and Romania and Macedonia. Uh, you know, as a kid, we used to always sing, we have heard the Macedonian call today, send the light, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, Paul heard that, but no, we've actually heard that. Because when you help out with mission points like EEM, it's so true that God's word doesn't come back empty, as Isaiah 55, 11 does say. And I want you all to know as a church family and be reminded this morning that if it's a dollar you're able to give, if it's a dollar that you put in the globe and you can put in a kid's hands, and that dollar does something across the world, God's going to do something with it. Amen? Amen. It's, it's incredible, the power of the Lord. And it doesn't matter if it's war-torn country or if it's a place even in here in Canadian where we feel like maybe sometimes with trouble coming our way or hardship or grief. Man, when we give things over to the Lord, He multiplies it and does powerful things. And we're so grateful for that this morning. I do want to encourage you to grab a Bible. This morning, Romans 14 and 15, we're going to cover a lot today as we wrap up, uh, for the most part, what our series is on living the altered, living sacrifice life out of Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15. This vision that Paul has given us for what it looks like to live daily lives of worship, holy and pleasing, our spiritual act, our proper worship, as the text says. And as y'all are turning there, I want to pray and then jump into a tough text today. A tough one, but an important one. Let's pray together. God, we just start with praise today. We, we praise you for what you're doing in Eastern Europe in 30 plus countries where kids and adults are receiving your word. And Father, it, it makes us feel so humble. We strive so much maybe to convince people and we forget that we just need to get your word in their hands. We forget that we just need to pray, that we just need to share a little bit of Jesus and you take care of so much. You change hearts and minds. And God, we praise you for that. And we praise you for what you're doing here in Canadian, what we can't see and what we can see. And we pray that you do more. We pray that we are able to open our eyes and see that, first of all, what you're doing, but second of all, and maybe even more important, that you want to use us. You want to use us on Giving Sunday on March 5th, but you want to use us every day as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. And so, Father, we pray for that. We pray this morning that you will come and move in our hearts and make much of your Lord and our, our Lord and our Savior Jesus and make much of your Son. And we pray that you will move in us to change us where our hearts are still hard and to give the hearts of flesh, as Ezekiel talks about. Lord, we love you. We give you the next few moments as we lead towards communion this morning. May we really commune with you in word and in deed and in fellowship with each other. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
So there was once a Christian guy, a devout follower of Jesus. His name was Bill. And he was searching online. Don't know if it was Facebook or wherever he was at one day. But he saw an online ad for a Christian horse that was for sale. Well, he thought, I've got to check that out as a follower of Jesus. I need to go find this Christian horse. You guys have already figured out this isn't a real story. But he went to go buy this horse. So he drove down the road. It was just a guy down the road from him. And he wanted to know what the deal was. So he pulled up and got out. And he goes, all right, I'm here to check out your Christian horse. The guy goes, oh, man, I got a deal for you. I'll let you have him go for a test drive on this horse even. But I'll tell you how it works, why he's a Christian. All you got to do to get him going is say, Praise the Lord. And then to get him to stop, just say amen. Well, Bill jumped on him. He was thinking, this is, this, there's no way this can be a real deal. This, this can't really happen. But he jumped on him and he, he said, praise the Lord. And the horse took off just with a little walk. Bill was pretty impressed. So he said, praise the Lord again. And the horse began to trot. Bill now was pretty impressive. And the horse was just so kind and so attentive to his call so he hollered again twice praise the lord praise the lord and the horse took off into full gallop bill was having such a great ride it was so impressive that he didn't even notice that there were, he was coming towards a cliff and it was going to put his life in danger and just at the last moment as he was about to go and him and the christian horse and the christian man bill were about to spill over the edge he yelled out at the top of his lungs amen And there, right on the edge of the cliff, the horse stopped. It was a close call. So Bill (sighs) breathed deep, his heart racing, took off his cowboy hat, wiped the sweat from his brow and said, praise the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't know who said this, but there is a fairly famous quote that's only three words long. It's attributed to different authors. But the quote is this, is that words create worlds. And it's true. How we say things, what we say, how we hear things, how we understand things, how we speak, all those things have the possibility to create our world. In Bill's case, it had the opposite. It had the ability to destroy his world. Now that is why biblical context is so important. How we think about the words of Scripture and how we receive them as 21st century listeners and readers is critical, especially when we come to a passage that uses language like Romans 14 and 15. Because Romans 14 or 15, heard correctly or heard incorrectly, has the power to either create a beautiful world and a beautiful church, and it has the power at the same time to destroy worlds, to destroy faith, and to harm with toxicity people's transformation. It's here at the end of Paul's vision of the life lived in the kingdom of God, what we've called the altered life, what he calls the living sacrifice, that Paul is going to finally, although he's alluded to it throughout the letter to Rome, he's going to finally call a spade a spade. In Romans 14 and 15, he's going to call out directly the center of the issues plaguing the churches in Rome. He does this for a couple of reasons, not only because he wants them to faithfully follow the gospel, but his other motive for doing this is Paul has a mission. 
He is the apostle to the Gentiles. So he has a goal. We find it in chapter 15, verse 23. You can read that. It's not on the screen. But Paul's goal is to get to Rome and use the Roman churches as a partnership to launch. And he wants to go as far as Spain. And he sees Rome, which it was the center hub of the modern, of the ancient world, which was the modern world then. He sees that as the best place to partner with those churches. And so when he explains and gets into the issues here, his heart is for mission. His heart is for a goal because he knows that he cannot connect with these churches in Rome if they are still arguing and dividing and fighting over who has power and privilege and whose tradition wins and whose tradition doesn't win. So Paul, in chapter 14 and 15, frames this discussion with them, wanting them to mature past this, mature past what he's going to call things that are negotiable. We'll get into a different word that he uses, but he uses the language of which he describes the church as a group of people who are weak and a group of people who are strong. And we see this language being used at the outset. Romans 14, 1 through 4. Let's hear these words from Paul. Paul says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Everybody would love that in the West Texas, your vegetarian friends. You guys have weak faith. You guys would love that. That is not what the passage is saying. All right? The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Then in chapter 15, he starts with another chapter, which really he wasn't writing in chapters. We've added that. But he starts a thought again with the weak and the strong. We, he says, who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. So he is going to talk about the weak and the strong. These two groups that he finally gives a name to or a title to, but who are these groups? We've, of course, done some work on this, but Paul here is clearly speaking to a group of people and giving this to a church who clearly knew what camp they were in. And since we've done some previous work on this in lessons prior, and if you haven't been there for those, go back and listen to it on our podcast, I think we make quick work of this question. Who's the weak and who's the strong? Well, just by what you've read, if you were paying attention and leading into that, you know that the weak are mostly Jewish Christians. Those are those that observe and want others to observe food laws. That's why they don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's the underscript that's happening there. Those are the ones that uphold Torah observant, and they keep marks of the covenant, like circumcision. We see Paul allude to these people here in chapters 14, 1 through 4 that we just read in verse 5 and more. The strong then most likely are 
Gentile Christians. And Paul calls them strong, not only because of the theological conviction they have in Christ, but he's calling them strong because if you'll remember, the Greeks or the Gentiles have social standing in the city of Rome. They're strong because they hold a place of privilege. Remember what Claudius's edict did to Jews and Jewish Christians, anyone of Jewish descent in AD 49. It kicked them out. Most Jews and Jewish Christians did not have Roman citizenship. But the strong, the Gentiles, they're coming from a place of privilege. They are Roman citizens, most likely, not their Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul will even in 15.1 identify and say, we who are strong. It's there on the, on the screen. He says this, not only tying himself to the strong because of his theological convictions that we don't have to follow kosher laws or circumcision rules anymore, but also because why? Paul is a Roman citizen. We know this, though, that both the weak and the strong, both of them, Paul is not interested in making somebody right and the other wrong. What he's interested in is connecting to what he says in 14.3. He says the one who eats everything must not treat with, the content, with contempt the one who does not. That's the strong. Gentiles, you can eat anything you want. It's not a big deal to you. But you can't have contempt. And then he also says, but the one who does not must not judge the one who does? Speaking to the Jews, the weak. So again, if you'll remember this, on one side you have the Jews who Paul is going to call the weak who are saying, our obedience, our tradition is how we show our faithfulness. On the other side, you have the Gentiles saying, no, 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 it's our freedom in which we show our faithfulness. But Paul calls them and uses the framework of the weak and the strong. This language works for Paul's framework for transformation. For him wanting to show both groups what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. And we're going to jump into this passage and make application to today. But before we do that, we need to say this. This was probably controversial words to hear for the first audience. And it most likely for us today will be difficult for us to hear. Romans 14 and 15 is a difficult and troubling passage because what we often try to do with it is make applications out of it that end up being contrary to what Paul is actually saying. We do this on one level because of this. We forget one big fact. We come to Romans 14 and 15 and we forget that for us in Canadian Texas, the number one big fact we often miss is there are no Jewish Christians in this church. At least that I know of, or at least not yet. We are 100% Gentile. And so to make one-to-one -one application of this text, we've got to be careful with. Because we don't have the exact same background. It doesn't mean that it doesn't apply, but often we can misapply because we miss the context. Another place that's a little less obvious that gives us trouble with interpreting and applying this passage comes from we often, when we have disagreement 
with somebody over disputable matters, we immediately want to jump into the merits of my argument, figuring out why I'm right and you're wrong, and then using chapters 14 and 15 as a backup for why I'm right and wrong instead of reversing that. Because Paul's not interested in who's right and wrong. He's interested in who's Christ-like. And we'll get into that a little bit. So let's remember that as we apply this today. If you're thinking, man, Jake, you're way off, just remember, I can be. But also remember, we've got to look at this through the first century lens, not the 21st century lens. And then we make application correctly. Hopefully we don't miss the entire point of Paul's teaching. So let's talk about this. Here's what usually happens when we deal with Romans 14 and 15. If you've been going to church most of your life, or some of your life, if you've ever been in church leadership or helped, been part of a ministry, you have probably at some time been a part of a misapplication of Romans 14 and 15. I certainly have. I've been the victim of it, and I've been the perpetrator of it. Without a doubt, I confess that to you today, because of misunderstandings. But what I'm going to call that today is most churches today are busy with Romans 14 and 15 pulling the old switcheroo. Now, here's what the old switcheroo is and how it works in churches today. And I'm going to give you a very uh, real-life, real example that I witnessed years ago in another church. Uh, I didn't change the names of Canadian people to protect the innocent. This happened somewhere else, so you can relax. Okay, here's how this went. Romans 14 and 15 came up because of this story that I'm about to tell you, but you're going to see how it was applied with the old switcheroo. Here's what happened. The church family that we were at was gathering once a month on Wednesday nights to hold a worship service together. It was the idea of a couple of the deacons. They saw a need for intergenerational worship, so they wanted the children and the teens and the college students and the adults, all generations together, share faith, sing a lot, encourage one another, and just be a blessing. On one Wednesday night, the theme was, because it was the dead of winter, the theme was camp songs. We needed a little shot in the arm. And so the song leader that, that night did everything around what you would experience at a church camp. Old and new church songs, camp songs. And of course, as our teens gathered that night, they engaged in worship like they would at camp. They clapped. There was a little hooping and hollering. They were very demonstrative in their worship. After services, there were some people in the church who were offended by that. They were offended by the actions of the teenagers. Some of those that were offended were part of and active in the church's leadership, including elders and deacons. They spoke up. And in a long story short, after their complaints reached most of the church family, by the time the next Wednesday night came around, a few weeks later, the leaders of the program were asked by the elders to just cancel it. The ministry stopped. The worship service on Wednesdays was canceled for good. Now that was the old switcheroo. Let me explain. By Paul's framework, the strong are who? They're those in privilege and power. 
those who hosted, those who had the gathering, those who had been in Rome longer, those who had citizenship. In our case with the church I just shared, those who were the strong were those who had been offended with the complaint. The weak, of course, in Paul's was the Jews. But the weak in the church story I just told, those with lower maturity in Christ and less influence in the church were teenagers. But when it came, kind of t- when it came time to make a decision, the strong who were offended pretended or used their power to appear weak and then told the teens to deal with it. We don't like the way you worship. We did the old switcheroo. It was the strong holding their power in such a way that allows them to appear weak when the situation was advantageous so that they could hold on to their power. And unfortunately, that's pretty common in churches today. But also, unfortunately, that is the exact opposite of what Paul is actually teaching in Romans 14 and 15. Now, this occurs in churches today for this reason. And I know Churches of Christ, so maybe I'm sure this happens in other places and other traditions and tribes. But it occurs in churches like ours today for this reason. It occurs because we have made nearly everything in church that happens in 75 minutes here on Sundays non-negotiable. We've made everything a right or wrong issue. That's what we did at that church that Wednesday night. We don't like the way you worship, so it must be wrong. Therefore, if it's right or wrong, then a church can't even discuss disputable matters because I don't have to yield on something that I consider sinful. That's the old switcheroo. But is this actually what is being taught in Romans 14 and 15? I don't get that when I read this text. Not according to the living sacrifice altered vision of Paul that looks like the life of Jesus that is described in Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15. Paul clearly says in 14.1, there is such thing as disputable matters. And there's probably a lot more disputable matters than there are indisputable matters. Amen? Here he goes in his teaching a little further. Let's see what he says here in verse 5. He continues and he says, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. See, Paul here, what he's doing is instead of 
choosing sides and saying, you're right. He, he does say, look, I'm, he, he identifies with somebody who would be in the strong camp, but he's not interested in making sure they're right. And he's not interested in the old switcheroo. What he does here is Paul plainly declares to those who believe it's a sin to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, the weak, and to those who believe they can do what they want and eat whatever they want and have the freedom, he says, you must accept each other despite your doctrinal differences. Now, I use that word. I know that's a scary word. Doctrine just means teaching of the church. Some doctrine we have is, is biblical. Some of it's traditional. Some of it's just doctrine that we've been passed on and we don't know why we have it. Doctrine, the only time that word really ever appears from Jesus is, is, is when he teaches on uh, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. He says your doctrine is right. To love God and love others, your doctrine is right. But Paul here hits a doctrinal issue head on, but what he says is, I'm not going to tell you which side I agree with. I'm going to tell you to get along. Why? And here's what he does. This is genius. He does this because what he says over and over, and if you were listening to verses 5 through 10 there, he repeats this phrase again and again and again. What they do, either eating or not, or loving this day or not, is to the Lord. In other words, both are saved by grace. And because they're saved by grace, we do all things to the Lord. It's plain. Paul's point is staring us in the face right here, especially when you take this phrase to the Lord and you connect it to Paul's favorite book. You know what Paul's favorite book was? You're holding it. It's called the Old Testament. He gets this phrase from places like Genesis 4.3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Or Genesis 12.8, talking about Abram. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There, he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Or Exodus 12.42, because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. And on the night, all the Israelites are going to, uh, keep, are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. See, what does kosher meat and special days have to do with church? What does not partaking in those activities have to do with following Jesus? Well, to Paul, he's returning to his main point. What he's getting back to here in this section in chapter 14 is, if you disagree with a brother, what if they're doing it for and to the Lord? Because Paul's point is, we want every moment of every day to be worship. He hasn't thought about or forgotten Romans 12, 1 and 2. He's still making the same point. To the Lord in the Old Testament is worship language. It's worship language of building altars and giving praise. And so he's saying, you may not agree with what your brother does or your sister does, but they're giving thanks to God. And it's God who covered them. It's God's love that accepts them. It's God's blood that forgives them. He will make them stand. Amen. Altered living. Every moment 
Paul is pushing us to say, live, whether you live or die, and everything in between. Let it be worship. So then who are we to judge our brother? It's by grace that they stand, and the Lord will make them stand. Not with what they believe on a disputable matter. One more key teaching, though. I want you to hear one more word here that's important as we wrap up and we move towards communion. Romans 14.1 and also in Romans 15.7, he not only makes the point that this is all going to the Lord, but he's going to say this, and these both come out of the English Standard Version. He says, as for the one whose faith is weak, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. In Romans 15.7, he says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now that verb is used here in 14 and 1 and 15 7 three times. Our English translations, the verb we're going to look at, if you're reading NIV, probably says accept. If you're reading ESV or something like it, it might say welcome. But the word here carries in Greek so much more emphasis, so much more weight than just accept somebody. Acceptance to us is like, well, I'll let you in the room. But you got to stay 200 feet from me. I'll commune with you as long as I don't have to look at you, right? (laughs) Welcome's a little bit better, so the ESV does a little bit better. But this word really comes alive when we think about how early Christians met. It seems that from reading in Romans, especially when you read chapter 16 and see the little house churches that Paul greets, that what Roman Christians were meeting in was either courtyards in a big house, but most likely a lot of these churches were meeting in insulas. This is an insula. It's an ancient apartment complex. Probably very much like Christians in Ukraine might be meeting when they don't have a church building. Or Christians in China right now are meeting today to commune. A very private, very close-quartered space where to welcome somebody means I'm welcoming you in to accept you in the fellowship and I am making space for you in a home because we share in something. This is the idea. In context then, when Paul says to welcome the other, it's not welcoming them at a distance or I'll welcome you as a brother or sister as long as I don't have to talk to you as we often practice. This is a phrase about radical hospitality. The word means, if we read it again, we could read it like this. Therefore, accept as a companion one another as Christ treated you as a brother. It is communal language. And of course, it appears all over Paul's favorite book the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, as well. Just as to the Lord was a phrase, this welcome word in the Greek Septuagint shows up. Psalm 27.10, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord accepts me. You hear that from the psalmist? I've been kicked out of my house. But the Lord accepts me, welcomes me in. Psalm 73, 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward 
You receive me, same Greek word there, you welcome me to glory. It's salvation language here. You're welcoming me into your courts. And then it's even used by Luke in Acts 28.2, speaking about the hospitality of foreigners to him and Paul when they were shipwrecked. The native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. See, this teaching by Jesus, or by Paul, sorry, is touching and it's challenging. What Paul is saying in Romans 15, 7, you ought to highlight that, underline that, put a, put a star beside it in your Bibles this morning. If it's a digital Bible, highlight it. Make a little note beside it. Is he is equating the welcoming that the strong and weak should do to each other to the welcoming that Jesus did at the table of communion. He says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. At the table. Accept each other at the table. Not from mutual distance or a position of weak tolerance, but from a position of saying, you know, we may not agree on something, but you know what we can agree on? You're covered by the blood of Jesus, and so am I. And therefore, that thing and what unites us is far stronger than anything that could ever divide us. But yet, often we don't live that way, or we don't live with the truth of the gospel in mind. What Paul is pushing us to do is to welcome each other from a place of hospitality and love. We welcome each other as we've been welcomed, extending what we have been given. And the only thing that a Christian ever has to give, the one commodity you have, it's not your talent because it's not yours. Those are gifts from God. But the one thing you have to give is grace. And Paul's saying, give it. Give it to each other. And so this morning, we're going to commune together with that in mind. We're going to wrap up our time together to launch out and to go be people of faith in Canadian and in Perryton and in Miami and in Wheeler and the surrounding area to say, let's go out with the blood of Jesus because we entered in with the blood of Jesus and we loved our brothers and sisters with the blood of Jesus. This table... At the table of the Lord, it's not a place for us to play political power games with the church. It's humbling and it's, I guess, confessional. I need to confess how often I've wanted to use power and maybe my ability to make an argument as a place of winning over a brother and sister instead of using the blood of Jesus. This is a place of radical grace. It's a place where I can see you and you can see me at the foot of the cross. And it's there that we receive mercy. And it's there that we remember that the thing that binds us That's what's essential. What is the salvation issue we should be worried about? 
There's really only one. And he has a name. It's called Jesus. He's the salvation issue. And if we are connected to him through baptism and that blood has covered us, then whatever we disagree on, we can come and work out because we extend radical acceptance to each other. I want to challenge you this morning as we commune. Guys that are going to lead us, go go ahead and come on up, uh, that are going to pass communion and pray for us. I want to challenge you that you take this serious today. That you don't just let it be a thing where you pass a snack by your lips, a few calories, a little matzah and a little bit of grape juice. But instead, let it be communion. If you need to get up and make amends with somebody, get up and make amends with somebody. Well, people will think poorly of me. No, we won't. Everybody in here probably has somebody they need to make amends with. Amen? Uh, If we think that, we're in the wrong place anyway. If you need to just sit quietly, sit quietly. If you need to reach over to a neighbor and say, I love you, do that too. But let's make this a communion of altered people living the sacrifice of Jesus. Jay, if you'll lead us in prayer. We all have differences and all have backgrounds that are different from one another. But we're all gathered as one because of the sacrifice and the grace of Jesus. As we partake of this broken body that you so freely gave for us to be together, we rejoice in the fact that we're all one. We're all one bodies of Christ. Here, Canadian, Ukraine, China, the saints in heaven, all over the world. We thank you for that. Take this broken body, so you might as well please it yourself. Amen. Amen.